And, and there was a point where I, and it was after The Rookie was finished, the script was finished, and Disney had given it a green light to move into production. And I, I decided, I've got to give this 100% of my effort. I do not want to look back years from now and wonder what would have happened if I had given it 100% of my effort. From the studios of Kink Radio, it's the Portland 50, a podcast series about the people who dreamt, built, and championed the innovation, growth, and uniqueness of Portland. The Portland 50 series is presented by Jaguar Land Rover Portland. One company, two iconic brands. Jaguar Land Rover Portland is a Don Rasmussen company, the legendary Portland institution serving our community since 1950. I'm your host, Peggy LaPointe. Today's guest is Mike Rich, former Kink Morning Show co-host, screenwriter with such credits as Finding Forrester, Radio, and Cars 3, and author of a new book, Scavenger's Hunt. It's been a while since I've been in front of a microphone. It really has. I mean, I'm, I'm looking around. The first thing I asked you when I came in was, okay, give me the lay of the land, because from a technical standpoint, times are a little different. It doesn't look like it did when you left in 2000. No. I mean, uh, of course, I was working with Les, uh, mm-hmm. Les Sarnoff on the air. Of course, I was. I, I would come in. The alarm went off at 3 in the morning for me. Yeah, you're familiar with this. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, we'd be on the air. But I was al- always three hours behind Les. Les would come in, and it was at midnight, right? Oh, he would come in at midnight. But when I started at Kink, and this was in the early 90s, he was coming in closer to 1 because the AP wire would shoot out all of its uh, entertainment right. news, and I'd have that ready for him by the time he came in. But throughout the years, he pushed that, and he was coming in by midnight by the time I was producing the show. And he had a yellow legal pad. He had a yellow <laughs> legal pad, and he had, I mean, this is a this is a tip of the hat to Les's talent and ability, is he would write out so much longhand. yes. And he would read it. Yes. A lot of it would read it off that, but would sound as if he was just sitting next to you in a coffee shop. Because he had a way of writing in a very conversational tone. He knew his voice. Yeah. He knew what he was doing. And uh, if he were ever to have to type any of this out, it was two fingers <laughs> hunting and pecking. And it would, I'd stand behind him going, oh, please just let me type this for you. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I just uh, miss him. Miss him dearly. I know. I know you do as well, because uh, it was a treat to, uh, you know, to work on that show with him. There were two uh, people I've worked with in radio. Bill Gallagher was one. Yeah. And Les Sarnoff was the other. And I'm not including you, because that would be embarrassing to butter you up before <laughs> this interview happened. But those two people, I learned so much about radio from yeah. them. Yeah. Yeah. I had lunch with Bill yesterday. I see him all the time. And, 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 you know, we just, sometimes we go, okay, we, we, we don't want to feel like we're from a, a different era of radio, but we are from a different era of radio. It was a different game back then. Oh, it was. I, you know, from the early 90s, and, and, and this is just my career after college, the early 90s to now, and, and this is my third time at Kink, each time I come back and I'm like, okay, what do I do? Got it. There's a new curve. <laughs> new curve. Yeah, uh, but it's good. Yeah. Those it's were good. good. Days, though. So you were here at Kink from 1991 through 2000, and you were the news director. The beginning part of your career at Kink, we did not overlap much. I was working overnights, mm-hmm. overnight weekends, which is like the, the, the hinterlands. Nobody 
nobody sees you. <laughs> they hear about you, but they don't see you. So that's when uh, you started. And then I left, and you and you and Les were doing the morning show. And by the time I came back to do the morning show, when I came back to do the morning show, produced it. I was already gone at that point. Because what happened was Finding Forrester, when I wrote Finding Forrester, and I was writing that while I was on the air at Kink, um, and I was writing it between 1 and 3 in the afternoon. Which is crazy. It was nuts. Yeah. And we had, my wife Grace and I, we had three kids at the time who were 14, 12, and 8. Um, so those were those, when I, when I say that I was writing between 1 and 3, those were sacred, those were sacred two hours. Oh, yeah. Um, and that was in, I submitted Finding Forrester to the, to the Nickel Fellowship competition, which for those who aren't familiar with it, was a... Still, still going on is mm-hmm. a competition that is sponsored by the the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, the gold gold statue people, and I did that. I entered it in 1998, okay, and yeah. in the fall of 1998 was after I had, and and maybe I should back up just a second because so I entered it in this competition. There were 4,600 scripts that were entered, and the only wow. The only qualification is it's it's only open to people who have to writers who've never sold a screenplay, mm-hmm. and I qualified for that. <laughs> and, so, <laughs> um, and so I entered it in like May, and in July I get the first letter back that congratulations you're you're a quarter finalist, uh, two hundred and twenty two out of forty six hundred scripts. And I mean, I, I came in the next day and I told Les, I go, you guys see this? <laughs> yeah, I showed him the letter. And he goes, well, we have to talk about this. And both of us were sure that that would be a good on-air bit for that particular day <laughs> and that that was going to be the end of it. Um, and then we did that and the listeners were, you know, they thought that was great. And then the next month I get one that says I'm a semifinalist, the, like the top 100. Um, and then finalist, and then finally, I win one of the fellowships. And so all of those mornings, Les and I, I'd, I got another letter, <laughs> and, uh, uh, and it was in the, the fall of that year um, when... Of 98. Of, of 98. Okay. Uh, that Sean Connery comes on board as a producer and wants to be in the film, and everything just takes off. Sony Pictures buys the script. And and it came out in 2000. It, yeah. it, it came out in uh, Christmas Day of 2000. And so I came on board for the morning show in 1999. And you were already gone from the morning show. Yeah, but that would, it would have been close. It was really close. Yeah, it was really close. Because I, I was in, uh, we were doing, we were in production. Mm-hmm. And I remembered that I would call in. Yes, I remember that. Almost every day mm-hmm. from Toronto. We started yeah. filming in Toronto. All of the scenes in Forrester's apartment were in Toronto. Um, and I'd talk with Les. And, uh, and I stayed on the air even after Finding Forrester came out. We set up a <laughs> microphone at my house so I could stay, you know, connected to the station and connected to the audience. Right. And even after Finding Forrester yeah. because we yeah. were doing the Friday uh, movie. That's trivia. right. Yes. That's right. Where I'd try and stump you. Stumping That's less exactly was easy. Right. Yes, yeah. I would play those uh, yeah. movie clips and try and stump you. That was my goal. So you've got a business degree from OSU, but you uh, you worked in radio basically from the time you graduated from college. Right. 
And then you decide to write a screenplay. Yeah, it's I, uh, it's it's a path not usually right. traveled. So, um, I mean, how long had that been on your mind before you finally said, "Okay, I got to just sit down and write this"? Not that long to write a screenplay, mm-hmm. but I always liked writing short stories, things like that, and that dates back to when I grew up in Enterprise, up in the northeastern part of the state. Um, had a great, terrific English teacher. Her name was Mrs. Forrester, so when <laughs> we, we used, I used her name as a tribute to what kind of teacher she was. But yeah, it's, uh, it was only a few years, probably two or three years before. So I'd say, I'd guess 95 was when I first decided I wanted to take a swing at writing mm-hmm. a script. And I often say that I went to the University of Powell's um, <laughs> because there really wasn't, there weren't too many resources to learn how to write except to read screenplays. So right. I, I read a lot of screenplays. It wasn't uh, the internet. And I wrote, I wrote uh, three really terrible screenplays before I wrote Finding <laughs> Forrester. <laughs> so as you're writing Finding Forrester, in your mind, are you thinking about actors for uh, William Forrester or Jamal Wallace? No. Um, I guess I was for Forrester a little bit. And who were but you I thinking was, about? I was thinking of Robert Duvall. Okay. And because I, I, when I was writing it, um, I wrote it strictly from a standpoint of an American author. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, and, and, and Duvall has always been one of my favorites, but when you get a phone call, from a producer who says, you know, Sean Connery wants to be William <laughs> Forrester. And I go, okay, all right, uh, I, can, I, can, I can sign on yeah, that. Yeah, we can go uh, on with this one. Uh, we'll just give him a Scottish backstory and we'll call it a day. <laughs> but I read that Bill Murray was actually considered for the part of William Forrester. I mean, it, could it you was, imagine? It was, yeah, I mean, um, it would have been a different film. It would have been a different film and... There were so many, I, I cannot tell you how... I look back on it, and I didn't go to film school. Yeah. I didn't go to film school. So I, I just, when, when I came on board and we go out to Toronto and we still had to film, uh, fill a lot of the roles, and all of a sudden F. Murray Abraham's on board and Anna Paquin comes on board. And, you know, I look back on it now and I go, this is not how it, that, that's not how it usually works. Right. I mean, it's a Hollywood script. It's a Hollywood. It's a Hollywood script. Within right. a Hollywood script. Yeah, yeah. So the 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 film is done. I remember the um, the film screening here in Portland. That was a lot of fun. Um, it comes out and it's a it's a success. You've yeah, got Roger yeah. Ebert and Richard Roper giving it two thumbs up. Mm-hmm. Um, Roper puts it on his top ten film list for the year, and then in two thousand nine. Number sixty-four in the top one hundred films of the decade. Yeah, That's pretty cool. Yeah. It's it's I it's so cool, um, and I look back on that experience. And one of my favorite moments was at the premiere. And so Sean Connery, I I had never really thanked him for sticking by me because the reality is, at any given moment, if he would have wanted to replace me with another more experienced writer, oh. uh, that would have happened. Right. Um, And I went up to him, and we're at the the Ziegfeld Theater in New York, and I thanked him. And he looked at me, and in typical, and I cannot do a very good Sean Connery (laughs) impersonation, but he said, Mike, if the words hadn't have been there, you wouldn't have been either. And and I just, I thought, that is the best thing anybody could have ever said instead of, 
Because it's true that if he would have pulled one or two. So I just, that's one of the best moments for me. During this time, I mean, what are you thinking? It's surreal. It's absolutely surreal. And then, and the question became, and it wasn't, it wasn't during Finding Forrester because Kink, I remember they were so gracious and generous and, and everybody was enthralled with the story. We were all excited. Uh, for yeah, it. everybody was excited. And so when I said, I need to go to Toronto and I need to take a month off the air, they said, okay, fine. All you have to do is call in these. And, and, but, it, but it reached a point, it was after The Rookie, when I was starting to write The Rookie, which was the second film, uh, that there was a juncture where my wife and I were just having this conversation of, do we keep trying to do it this way? Are we being fair to ourselves? Are we being fair to the radio station? Are we? And uh, and and there was a point where I, and it was after the rookie was finished, the script was finished, and Disney had given it a green light to move into production, and I I decided. I've got to give this 100% of my effort. I do not want to look back years from now and wonder what would have happened if I had given it 100% of my effort and had and and so uh, certainly no regrets at all. But it was uh, it was it was not an easy decision uh, at the time. I can only imagine because I have often said that working with Les was the best job I ever had. Yeah, yeah. and. So to leave what I can only imagine, we've talked about this before, was a fantastic job with a, a co-worker that... <laughs> an iconic co-worker. Yes. I mean, really an iconic voice. Yes. Uh, and a good and, friend. And a good friend and a good person. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, you had to follow your dream. And it's hard, hard having to get up at 3 o'clock, because I've done it, uh, do a show, try and sleep. You've got kids at home. I am a mess. So I can when you're telling me that, you know, you took those 2 hours and that's probably the prime, you know, time uh for the thought process. <laughs> um that's a lot. It's a lot. So something had to give. Yeah, something had to give and I I just um you know, in hindsight, of course, people say, well, of course he should have done what, you know, because of all these films. Well, we didn't know all those films were going to happen. I mean, the rookie could have been the very last thing and then yeah. but but um you know it just was such a dream opportunity uh that I felt to not give it you know everything that I had would be to uh, insult the opportunity as it were right it's it's it is in many ways once in a lifetime yeah and yeah. why not follow that and see where that path leads you right you're listening to King's Portland 50 series. I'll continue our conversation in a moment, but I wanted to thank our sponsor. The Portland 50 series is presented by Jaguar Land Rover Portland. One company, two iconic brands. Jaguar Land Rover Portland is a Don Rasmussen company, the legendary Portland institution serving our community since 1950. Now back to my conversation with Mike Rich. I want to do something now. So you've got a number of um, movies under your belt. So I want to list each one, and I want you to tell me something about the experience of either writing uh, or working with the folks on this film. Okay, okay. That I, I like this. maybe yeah. you haven't shared or maybe whatever comes to the top of your head. Okay. Okay, right. so Finding Forrester, we've already talked about that, but, yeah. but what about that experience stands out? It was working... Uh, 
as as great as it was to be working on a Sean Connery film, it was watching Rob Brown. Rob Brown, who played Jamal Wallace mm-hmm. uh, and was a 15-year-old kid whose own story, African-American kid from the Bronx, whose, whose own story really was similar to that of the character of Jamal, who, um, you know, single-parent household, um, and staying in touch with him and watching. There was a, there was, and Gus Van Sant, the director, was so smart. He knew that, that, that Rob had never, had never acted before. And so those first few scenes, what he did was they were all shot in the Toronto soundstage where Forrester's apartment had been constructed. And instead of just starting off day one with everybody on the set, Gus was smart enough to wean Rob into the situation. So the first day, it was just the three of them, Mm. Sean, Rob, and Gus, not even me. Uh, And then the next day, I was added to the mix. And then the next day, a camera operator was added to the mix. Then they added a little bit of light. So by the time three weeks later when we began filming, Rob had become accustomed to it. Watching him... Um, evolve um, and step up to the situation with something to see. Do you still keep in touch with them? Yeah. yeah, Oh, that's awesome. I sure do. Yeah. All right. So the next one you mentioned already, uh, 2002, The Rookie comes out. It's got Dennis Quaid and Rachel Griffith. Right. Right. I just felt like we were playing with house money on that one. (laughs) I'll tell you why. Because we were all, every one of us, John Lee Hancock was the director of the film. He has since gone on to direct The Blind Side and Saving Mr. Banks and is totally in demand. Um, but that was his first time directing. Um, there was there was this feeling that the Writers Guild was going to go out on strike that year. Mm-hmm. And we didn't at the end of the game, but what Disney and every other studio was trying to do was to protect the big film they were making at the time and a stockpile product. And we were just, nobody thought we were going to do anything. We, they, everybody loved the script. They thought it was a nice little story that was going to, that men would be attracted to. Um, and they, so they just said, okay, here's your budget. Go off to Austin, Texas and make your film. And it was like high school. <laughs> and so I, I just remembered that experience. And then when it came back and we found out that the film was scoring higher with women than it was with men. Um, oh, Dennis Quaid. With Dennis Quaid. <laughs> right. I mean, you know. Bingo. Yeah. Uh, 2003 Radio, uh, Cuba Gooding Jr., uh, Ed Harris, Deborah Winger, Alfred Woodard. I remember going out to Anderson, South Carolina, which is where it's based on a true story about, you know, this coach, uh, Harold Jones, played by Ed Harris, uh, and a developmentally disadvantaged young African-American man, played by Cuba Gooding. Um, and I spent time, spent about two or three weeks with the real Coach Jones and the real radio. Mm. Um, and I remember this one moment where I had gone out to interview radio with his brother, and then we were going to go. Coach Jones had given me a map to his house because we were going to have a barbecue afterwards. There were no... Navigation really, really, devices. There was no navigation. <laughs> and uh, uh, I remember that... I was doing really, really well until I came up to a road closed and really didn't have a detour sign. And all of a sudden, radio was just pointing directions, pointing this way without a word. He was very, he had, he didn't trust me yet, per se, mm-hmm. and just pointed and pointed and pointed. And uh, 
and uh, I remember I just followed his playing directions, and we got there, and I put it in the movie. Nice. I put that scene in the movie. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, 2004 Miracle. Now, you're uncredited for this, uh, yeah. but Kurt Russell um, stars in it. It's about the 1980 Olympics with the U.S. men's hockey team. Um, I remember when you were writing this. This is uh, We talked about this on the morning show quite a bit with Les. Yeah, and, and you being an upper Midwest. Right, uh, well, hockey. Yeah, exactly. hockey, so it was like a Bible story for some, <laughs> for some folks from Wisconsin and Minnesota. Uh, and we filmed it all in, in Vancouver, B.C. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got to know so many of the, the players on the team, uh, the real team. And then uh, um, Herb Brooks, here's a, a story about Herb Brooks. When I first met him, he was the coach of the team, and he was a very intimidating guy. Uh, his personality, which is what Kurt portrayed so beautifully in the in the film, um, and we were having it was the first time I'd met him, and we're in Minneapolis, mm-hmm. and we're having um, we're having lunch or no we're not having lunch yet, so we're meeting and he's very standoffish. He doesn't he doesn't he doesn't know about this whole movie business and doesn't know about <laughs> me and doesn't know what he you know pro- I'm probably not going to go see this film kind of a thing. And I remember he finally said, you want to break for lunch? And I said, yeah. And he goes, where would you like to go? And I said, I don't care. It's your town. I didn't say it in that tone of voice. I mm-hmm. said, I don't care. It's your town. He goes, this is not my town. And I didn't realize. I found out later he's from St. Paul. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he's from St. Paul, <laughs> which I always thought, Twin Cities, no, no, they no, must no, get no, along no. like, uh, yeah. I've got sisters and friends and family who live on both sides of, yeah. Of, yeah. yeah. You don't miss that up. But and 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 of course the worst phone call I got was before the film was released. Uh, the phone call that Herb had been, had been killed in a car accident just uh, a few months before the uh, uh, film was released. And uh, Gavin O'Connor was the director. Came up with the best tribute at the end, where he, he at the credits had rolled, and there was a picture of the of the real Herb Brooks, and said that he never got a chance. He never got a chance to see it. He lived it. And I thought that was a great, yeah. great tribute. Yeah, I remember all of that happening at that time. Yeah. Uh, the next film was a couple of years later, 2006, another uncredited film, uh, Invincible. And uh, there's a theme here, obviously, with sports. Yeah. Uh, this is, and I'm going to mess up his name, I think, Vince Papal? Papali. Papali. Close, That's, very good. Uh, Italian very then. Good. Vince yeah. Papali yeah. Uh, played for the Eagles, uh, 76 to 78. You've got Mark Wahlberg. Greg Kinnear and Elizabeth Banks in that movie. And I just remember how all three of those actors were so phenomenally committed to not not just the story, not just the film, but they never really retreated to their trailers. They always were there with, they were so, I don't, I don't know if I've worked with performers who were more popular with the crew. Uh, they were always there and always, uh, always around. Uh, we had to film, uh, it was a story based on uh, the Philadelphia Eagles who used to play in the vet back in the day and, and they didn't have the vet had been torn down and so we filmed it at uh, Franklin historic Franklin Field uh, <laughs> in August and in Philadelphia in August it can be oh, gosh. brutal yes um, little humid little hot yeah and uh, uh, it's 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 interesting how they they have to film um, they they hired um, players who had played Division one Division two college football uh, and Wahlberg never liked to 
have the uh, stunt double come in for him. He always really? hung in there. And, uh, <laughs> boy, he took some pops. Okay. There was one time where we thought, broken collarbone, we're going to be going home for a few weeks. But he's, he's, he was fine. So while that was going on, you were obviously also writing your next film, which is a break from sports, mm-hmm. uh, the nativity scene. And I remember this. Um, it's a film based on the nativity of Jesus. And at that time, I was pregnant. I think I gave birth. I did. I don't think. I know I gave birth in July. And I offered up my son <laughs> to go because this was filmed in Italy, wasn't it? It was filmed in Italy. Was, I offered yeah. up my son so that he and I could go to Italy. For that. Yeah, we were down in a little town called Matera, which if you look at Italy like the boot, it's down in the Achilles heel. And uh, the thing I remember most, it was this beautiful, ancient Italian town. But it was the invitation that we got when the premiere uh, that we got invited to the Vatican oh. to show the uh, um, to show the film, and the Pope was not there. He was on a uh, he was abroad at the time, uh, but there were about twenty cardinals who sat right behind us, and and you know I just kept waiting to look over my shoulder and have someone you know give me a <laughs> no 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 look, uh, but. Um, but that was such a treat. That was the first time that the Vatican had ever hosted a movie premiere. Wow. Yeah, That's so, pretty awesome. That was fun. Uh, did Grace get to go to Italy with you? Yes, okay, she good. did. Uh, in fact, our whole family got to go. Um, and the the other thing, this shows how long, long ago it was, was um, we're huge Oregon State football fans. And my young son thought this was not a fair trade to go to Italy and see a premiere at the Vatican of my dad's movie, and I'm going to miss a football game in Corvallis. Um, and I remember it was like 2 in the morning when we were all in our Italian hotel room listening on computer technology. It actually exactly. caught up with us, and we were then. able to watch it. A few years later, Secretariat, yeah, uh, by a thoroughbred racehorse, uh, Diane Lane and John Malkovich were in this movie, and it was nominated for an ESPY. Uh, it was nominated for actually for a number of different awards and won a couple of awards. But yeah. the SB, did you go to the ESPYs? Yeah, I've went to the ESPYs uh, a handful of times actually. Did you see Aaron uh, Rodgers? I did not see Aaron <laughs> Rodgers. <laughs> I saw a lot of quarterbacks. Though. Okay. I uh, I remember um, having a conversation with Tom Brady, Peyton Manning, and Stuart Scott, who was oh, the yeah. late Stuart Scott uh, from ESPN. Um, the Secretariat was a tough nut to crack because I think a lot of writers or a lot of folks who wanted to make the film had wanted to focus on the horse. And in a mm-hmm. way, you, you couldn't, you know, most, a lot of sports films are underdog stories. Well, Secretariat was never an underdog. Secretariat, even though the film is named after Secretariat, it wasn't until we realized, wait a second, Penny Chenery, who's played by Diane Lane, she's the underdog. Yeah. Uh, the, the horse is just a, a story vehicle for her character to find her own life right. and where she's going. And once, once you make that decision, then it takes off. And then finally, Cars 3. Let me tell you, if you uh, I have three grandchildren, <laughs> and if you ever want to hit a tape measure home run with your grandchildren, my recommendation is write a Pixar film. Um, <laughs> You're the best grandpa yeah. ever. And, it, and it's interesting because it has its roots in Finding Forrester. And I, got, I found this out after the fact. But Pixar wanted to, they knew this was the third chapter in the trilogy. 
And they wanted it in the first one, Doc Hudson, who was portrayed by Paul Newman. Um, you know, they, they knew they wanted it to be a mentoring story. And mm-hmm. I had heard after the fact that they kept referencing Finding Forrester as an example of a film that got mentoring correct. Mm-hmm. And finally, it was someone, one of the producers, who said, well, wait a second. Why don't we find out the, find the guy that, that wrote Finding Forrester and see if uh-huh. he'd be interested? So that's how I, I came on board. Um, and that's the one I haven't seen because my kids are past the Cars 3. I love Cars. Yeah. I might just have yeah, to rent it anyway. Yeah. It's, we're really proud of it. It's... Uh, um, we 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 didn't want to. We just we just wanted to make sure that we that we ended that trilogy on a good note. And we we were particular to a point where we knew that we were going to have to see a lot of Doc Hudson in flashback. And mm-hmm. Paul Newman had since passed on. Right. But they had done 22 hours of voice work with him on Cars One. Are you serious? And so we went back and we listened to all of it and lifted out. Wait, that's that that line is applicable. They didn't use it. It's wow. applicable for us. And so when you hear Paul Newman in Cars 3, it's Paul Newman. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. yeah. That is not the end of film writing. I'm, I'm imagining of screenwriting. But in the meantime, yeah. uh, you've got a new project that my son, my younger son right now is reading. Uh, it's a book called Scavenger's Hunt. It was a creative itch that I had to scratch. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've been wondering about that. It's a different kind of writing. Oh, definitely. I mean, it's, uh, but, but a story is a story, and characters are characters. Um, but it was always something, and it dates back to when I, when I was growing up in Enterprise, we had this great little bookstore out there called The Book Loft, a small independent bookstore. And that's where I fell in love with reading and likely by extension with writing. Mm-hmm. And, and that's where I, I found books like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, Wizard of Oz, classics. And I always kind of felt that if if I could come up with a story that was similar to those stories um, and that maybe could serve as a tribute or just a tip of the hat to those iconic classics, I'd like to write that. And so I came up with the idea for Scavenger Hunt, Scavenger's Hunt, which was just a, a magical, fantastical origin story of where the first scavenger hunt took place and, and a Willy Wonka-ish uh, character named Hunter S. Scavenger who put it all together and how it captivated the globe back in the late 1800s. There's a dash of time travel in there, and uh, um, it was a treat to write. It was a lot of fun. I almost took a picture last night because my son was on the couch reading it. I'm like... Oh, that's great. Yeah, that's he's, great. he's enjoying it. Yeah. He's, uh, he's in sixth grade, uh, and he came to reading a little later than his older brother, um, but now he's devouring it, and he he likes it. Well, that's that good to hear because yeah. he's in the sweet spot from exactly. a, from a uh, an age standpoint. Um, you, and any author you like to think when you, when you get the question, now uh, what age is this targeted to? You go all ages. You know, it's a story <laughs> for all ages. But but uh, I would you know I would say uh, kids between the ages of nine and thirteen is probably right right yeah. where it's aimed. The next question is. What's next? What's next? <laughs> What's next? Um, you know, I, I, I don't want to say I don't know, um, but I've been so fortunate that it's given me the ability to really be discerning mm-hmm. about what I want to do. I, I, don't, I don't take any – and if you would have I, – I never could have imagined me sitting in this chair in 
from a perspective of 1998 saying, you know, I'm, I'm just going to write things that move me um, because um, now I, I have the ability to do that. And, and so I have, I have stories that I want to tell. Um, am I going to write another novel? Yeah, I'm going to write another novel. Am I going to write another screenplay? Yes, I'm going to write another <laughs> screenplay. Not sure. And, and, uh, and the, the Pixar experience, I, I always say the Pixar experience was exhilarating and exhausting. Yeah. Uh, it, was, it was a 20-month stint that um, was a, one of the most exciting things that I've ever done. But now I'm in that process where I just I have to make sure that I, the creative well fills back up. Um, and so that's what I'm doing over this holiday season is just... That's a good yeah. place to be. But Ooh. now I'm going to ask you something else, and I'm going to keep pushing at this one because I just thought of this. What have you not explored creatively that you'd like to explore? Wow, that's a good question. Um, there aren't any particular genres that it's not like I'm going to say, oh, I'd like to write a thriller. Um, um, there are characters. For me, it's all about character. And, and telling a about, story. Yeah, yeah, and just finding a character that intrigues me. Um, and so... Um, there's 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 a couple a couple ways to answer that question. Number one, there are there is we are living in a golden era of television right now, mm-hmm. in which it gives us the ability to tell stories that you might not otherwise be able to tell. Um, and so, um, I'm I'm looking for that char- a character that um, interests me. Um, I guess that's my my. My sh- long-winded short answer is I'm just looking for characters that I want to write. I want to spend that time works. with. That yeah. works because yeah. you have to enjoy it. Yeah, you have to enjoy it. And because you, 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 when you say yes to a project, you're saying, okay, this is what my next two years of my life are going to be. Yep. So you have to. You have uh, to love it. You have to love it. You have to love it. You can't even be, you can't, liking it is not enough. No, absolutely liking not. Not for not that enough. length of time. Right. No, and not right. to put your heart and soul into it. Yeah. In the meantime, Scavenger's Hunt is out. It's online. Amazon, other bookstores. Amazon, Barnes and Noble, the the, the usual places that you might imagine. Uh, Inkshares is the publisher. They're down, and so you can go to inkshares.com. And uh, there's a little video on there with me, kind of talking a little bit about, you know, why I why I wrote the story. And so, if you get a chance, check check it out. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it, Peggy. Thank you for joining me for our debut podcast in Kink's Portland 50 podcast series. It's a celebration of Kink FM's 50th anniversary. And this podcast series is about the people who dreamt, built, and championed the innovation, growth, and uniqueness of Portland. The series is presented by Jaguar Land Rover Portland. One company, two iconic brands. Jaguar Land Rover Portland is a Don Rasmussen company, the legendary Portland institution, serving our community since 1950.